Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will discuss the concept of intrinsic value. It's something value investors talk about all the time, especially people like Warren Buffett. Now, I've discussed growth versus value investing littered throughout my podcast series, but I've never really discussed the concept of intrinsic value. So let's go into this in more in-depth. Let's get started. So what is intrinsic value? Put simply, it just means what an asset is worth. But rather than have a subjective assessment of this, the calculation of intrinsic value can be done objectively using various mechanisms. The important distinction to be made here is intrinsic value of an asset is not the same as the asset's market price. But comparing the intrinsic value of an asset to the current market price will give you a little bit of an idea on whether the asset is undervalued or overvalued. To determine the intrinsic value of an asset, most financial analysts use a business cash flow to determine. Fundamentally, value investors calculate the intrinsic value of an asset, then make the decision on whether to buy that asset or not. Now, before we embark the concept of discounted cash flow analysis and really go geeky on that, which is one of the main ways that investors can calculate a company's intrinsic value, I think it's important to understand some of the qualitative and quantitative factors which you may wish to consider when analyzing a business to come to the formula of intrinsic value. Now, I've discussed PE ratios and PB ratios in the past, so take a look at those episodes when you have some time. So, what is quantitative analysis. This is more of an objective analysis using numbers, usually called quant analysis. You may have heard of this term in the media quite a bit. Usually various computer models are used for this sort of analysis. The whole point of this sort of analysis is to use metrics to analyze a company or stock, to assist investors to make profitable decisions. Harry Markowitz published an article called Portfolio Selection in 1952 and is generally credited for the origins of quant analysis. From that, he introduced the modern portfolio theory, which I've discussed in depth in previous episodes, for which he won the Nobel Prize. Basically, MPT, or modern portfolio theory, showed investors how to construct a diversified portfolio of assets capable of maximizing returns for various risk levels. Usually people that are doing quantitative analysis are using complex computerized algorithms which determine it for them. Usually their background is in mathematics or statistics and they work for large investment companies and hedge funds. The advantage of using computers to determine this is they can create algorithms, then make automated trades based on various rules, and in fact most of the world's trading happens automatically anyway without human input most of the times. And this is even before artificial intelligence. 
The problem here is sometimes such strategies are destined to fail. And this is because algorithms are good for common situations, but when rare situations happen like COVID or GFC, they can't account for that qualitative factor. For example, during the GFC, complex algorithms can't foresee the impact mortgage-backed securities have on the economy. They also couldn't predict COVID and determine the impacts of COVID on the economy. Probably the most common situation where quants are used are high-frequency trading, called HFT. And usually the data is all available publicly, so algorithms and software extract this data for analysis, and they're also able to gather and crunch enormous amount of data in a very short amount of time. So the algorithms over time are getting more and more complex. And they can analyze various factors like price movements, trading volume patterns, earnings, earnings forecast, earnings surprises, and a whole host of other factors. So let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is an investment analyst and works for a large hedge fund company. They execute a complex trading strategy based on complex algorithms. One of the factors they look for is trading volume patterns. They've also noted something interesting for company ABC stock. They've also noted that company stock price has been just about $5, the trading volume pattern rises. But when it hits around $10, the trading volume pattern falls. Therefore, they arbitrage this information, building an algorithmic trading strategy, which might look like this. Buy when the stock reaches $5.01 and sell when the stock reaches $10.01. This can be automated. And Amy doesn't really care about the company's management team and other qualitative factors. All she cares about is the numbers and, of course, making money. Now, quantitative analysis can also be used to not just make money, but also to reduce risk. Don't get me wrong, investment companies love money. But like Buffett said, the first rule of money is don't lose money. So quants can be used to reduce risk when it comes to investments. This is something we all need to consider. That is, we need to consider what level of risk we can take for the returns we can get. Because overall, the higher the risk, the more the return. But there is a sweet spot when the returns actually decline, the more risk you take. Personally, for me, I don't like to take on more risk, as I'm in the stage of my life where I'm trying to grow and preserve wealth. In fact, preservation is more important than growth for me at this stage. I've reached a stage in my life where I don't want to put stuff things up and be too greedy and taking on more risk. I know plenty of people are on their stage of life too. Now, we previously in other episodes discussed risk-adjusted returns and risk measures such as alpha, beta, R-squared, sharp ratio and standard deviation. So go back and listen to those episodes if you're interested in the geeky stuff. So let's use an example. Amy is an investment analyst and works for a large hedge fund company. She's gathered some data using complex software and it shows the following. Company A and company B are two different investment options. The data shows to get a similar return in company A, the risk is higher. Whilst to get a similar return in company B, the risk is much lower. Logic says, why take more risk to achieve a similar outcome? So she decides to invest in company B. Now, this isn't rocket science to make this decision, but she's using quantitative analysis to come to this conclusion. Unfortunately, the average investor, you or I, just don't have this level of data to analyze that quickly. The access to information is public, but the processing of huge amounts of data is something I can't do, nor can the average retail investor. This is one of the reasons I've stuck to index funds. Lastly, one more example to highlight the benefit of quantitative analysis. Suppose you have assets which are diversified in the ASX 300 index fund and cash, 
And you want to use a strategy that when times are uncertain and volatility is high, you want more assets into cash than stocks, than vice versa. You can use quants to do such trades for you automatically. And it happens behind the scenes. And it's completely automated. Sounds easier said than done. Trust me. So what's the downside to all this? Remember, we're only focusing on the numbers. Can numbers be manipulated? Yep. So without knowing who's behind those numbers, who's inputting those data, who's inputting those numbers, quants can lead you astray. Think about companies like Nikola and Theranos, large multi-billion dollar BS corporations, which turned out to be frauds. So why did quants fail? People didn't do their qualitative analysis of these companies, which is the next subtopic. So what is qualitative analysis? This is more than just numbers. It's more subjective. Qualitative factors predominantly look at the company, the business model as a whole, and look at factors like A, management, who's running the company, B, who are the company's customers, and are they satisfied, and C, any pending litigation, and D, what is the company's supply chain and relationship with its vendors, E, do they have any patents, and F, do they have any competitive advantage when it comes to technology and software or even hardware, etc., etc. Management expertise, they look at industry cycles any research and development, labour and their relations, and the list just goes on. Essentially, qualitative analysis deals with intangible aspects of a business, things you can't quantify and can change based on subjective perceptions. With the rise of AI, qualitative analysis, ironically, will one day be done by computers too. Let's use an example to highlight qualitative analysis. Amy is an investment analyst. She's thinking about investing in company ABC, and she decides to perform a qualitative analysis and look at the management especially. She notices something very abnormal. She Googles the name of the CEO and finds some damning information about 10 years prior where the CEO was found guilty of mismanagement of company finances. Criminal charges were dropped, and then CEO ended up being sacked by the board. And likely this information, despite the quant suggesting the numbers were great, proved very useful for Amy, and Amy alerted her team not to invest in this particular company. A few months later, the company's CEO was once again found guilty of cooking the books and was charged with a criminal offence this time. So in this case, Amy has used qualitative analysis in order to save some money and the money of her company. Now, some of the things you can use to do your own qualitative analysis are, number one, listening in on the conference calls. Gives you clues on the company's CEO and management. Do they really know their numbers or they're just making all the stuff up? Number two is management discussion and analysis. Companies need to provide this when they file their financial status, usually for publicly traded companies. Number three is you can look at panel interviews, panel groups, and document analysis using the service or product company makes and tells the big story about all this. So let's use an example to further highlight qualitative analysis. Amy is an investment banker and is thinking of company Q, which is an airline company. The quant analysis is splendid and the numbers show it's pretty big, stable, and profitable company. She does some qualitative analysis and actually uses a service. She found the customer service terrible. The flights were routinely cancelled. There was avid reports of lost baggage, although this may not be the company's fault, but it's how they handled it which was a concern. The booking site is a bit buggy and confusing, and they tend to add more and more charges so the final price is nothing like the advertised price. She doesn't think it's a good company to invest in. A few months later, there is a large media story about other companies struggling. The thing is, qualitative analysis isn't foolproof either. The reality is most people would use a mix of quantitative and qualitative analysis before investing their money. 
For example, if you look at Facebook, its CEO is Mark Zuckerberg, who's a college dropout. Same with Bill Gates at Microsoft. So no one would have predicted that Microsoft and Facebook would be one of the biggest companies in the world. Now, just because someone has a Harvard degree doesn't mean they're destined to be successful in finances or business. Now, that we have totally geeked out on quantitative and qualitative analysis, let's get on to the main topic of intrinsic value. And we'll do this after a short break. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, welcome back. We've already defined intrinsic value, but it's probably worthwhile learning about how to calculate it. Now, there isn't a set method to do this, but the most common method investors use to calculate intrinsic value is called the discounted cash flow analysis. So what is DCF? Discounted cash flow analysis. This is an evaluation method where investors use future cash flows to determine the present day value of a business or company. The reason for this is called time value of money. It means money today is worth more and has more value than money tomorrow. Therefore, the DCF strategy can be used by anybody who's paying money today with the expectation of receiving a return on it in the future. So, investors. To highlight this concept quite easily, supposing you have $100 today and deposit it into a savings account which gives you 10% interest per annum. In one year, that $100 will now be worth around $110. But suppose that $100 is not paid today but is delayed by one year. This means the value today is actually only $90 accounting for the lost interest rate because you don't have the money today and are only getting paid in one year. In other words, your future expected gain is $100, but its present value is $90. So that's technically a good thing. Simply put, once you use DCF analysis and find the value of a company or business, that's higher than what it is worth today. A, that's a good buy. And B, if it's lower than its present cost, that's a bad buy. And therefore, DCF can be used to make investment decisions because it arrives at the intrinsic value of a company or stock. To do a DCF analysis, the investor needs three things. Number one, estimates of future cash flows. Number two is they need to determine an appropriate discount rate for the model of calculation. And number three is if they can't do these two fundamental things, then a DCF analysis 
is pointless. Before we embark on an example of doing a DCF analysis, we need to understand the concept of a weighted average cost of capital, WACC. But often this parallels the discount, which can be applied. Now, the purist out there will cry foul because I've used the weighted average WACC, which is a weighted average cost of capital rate as a discount rate. But just stay with me there because I just want to illustrate this point. And that is that when a company expends capital, i.e. spends money on a project, there needs to be a return on that money. So that return on that money is called the weighted average cost of capital. So when you look at projects and determine the weighted average cost of capital and then find out the project's return is going to be higher, that's a good project to invest in. Makes sense. If the returns is going to be less than the weighted average cost of capital, then it's a project not worthwhile to invest in. Makes sense. Ideally, the WACC or the weighted average cost of capital should be as low as possible because you don't want to expend money at a high cost. You want to borrow money to grow the business at the lowest rate possible, the lowest cost possible. And investors also like this idea, which means when they expend capital, their cost is low, but hopefully their returns are higher. So generally speaking, a business with a lower WACC means it's a good and healthy business. And generally speaking, a business with a higher WACC means it's not so good a healthy business. And remembering that a company has various ways to obtain capital through its profit, through common stock or investors, bonds, through debt, borrowing money, etc. To use a simple example, if a company borrows money for a project at an interest rate of 5%, then that is the cost of the capital, i.e. that is the WACC on that money for that project. Many companies use various ways to raise capital, including debt, stocks, etc. Now, we could go on and on about this concept and talk about RRR, which is required rate of return, etc. But I won't bore you with this. And I actually also find this very extremely complex myself. There's various formulas to use. Now, back to DCF analysis. Here's the formula. Pay attention. DCF equals cash flow for year one divided by one plus discount rate plus Cash flow for year two divided by one plus discount rate to the power of two plus cash flow for year three divided by one plus discount rate to the power of three, so on and so forth. So let's use an example to tie all of these concepts together. Amy is an investor and is looking at company ABC. Company ABC is embarking on a project which is going to cost around $10 million. The project is going to last around five years. The weighted average cost of capital is 5%. So what are the other things we need? We need estimated cash flow, which is going to be a meal for year one, a meal for year two, two million for year three, three million for year four, and five million for year five. And we've got to determine the appropriate discount rate, which is also the same as weighted average cost of capital, which in this case is 5%. Now, if you use the formula, here is the DCF for year one to year five. The discounted cash flow in year one is 952380 in year two, it's $907,029. In year three, it's $1.728 million. In year four, it's $2.47 million. And in year five, it's $4 million. Adding up all of this equates to around $10,066,747. Now, this is an approximate figure because I haven't rounded it off to the nearest $1,000 in all of my calculations. Now, remember, the initial investment was going to be $10 million. So stay with me here. So we'll need to subtract $10 million from the $10,066,747, which leaves us with a $66,747 figure. What does that mean? This means after five years, the project will make more money than what it cost. 
but it's only going to make $66,747. Although it's not a bad outcome, it may not be enough to entice investors to put in $10 million up front. Remember, we've already factored in the discount rate of 5%, which is the same as the WACC, the Weighted Average Cost of Capital. Now, supposing the initial investment cost was $12 million and we had the same outcome, it just means the project is not worth it, as it would be in the negative. So what are the pros of this method of discounted cash flow analysis? Number one, it provides a rough guide on whether an investment is worth it or not, whether it will gain a positive return or not. What are the cons of this method? Number one, notice we're estimating the future cash flows of the business. So it's a rough idea. It's a rough figure and not very accurate. And of course, market conditions can turn and your estimates of cash flows could all be just plain wrong. Now, we've discussed about discounted cash flow analysis when it comes to a company's project. But what about using it to determine intrinsic value and thus allowing investors to make critical decisions on whether to invest in that company or not? So let's use the example of how discounted cash flow analysis can be used to calculate the company stock's intrinsic value. Now, Amy is a securities analyst and is looking at company XYZ. The company's cash flow is $100 and is projected to grow about 5% over the next 10 years. Let's use the ASX 200 PE ratio as a benchmark of 12. This means 12 equals the price of a share divided by 100. So if you use a mathematical genius, the stock price is around $1,200. This means in year one, it's $100. This means by the time we get to year 10, it'll be 100 multiplied by 1.05 to the power of 10, which is around $163 in cash flow. What discount rate should we apply? Well, I think it's reasonable to apply whatever the government bond rate is because it's low risk and it's almost guaranteed return. So let's assume that's around 3%. I'm making these numbers up, by the way. And this means the discounted cash flow in year one is $100 divided by 1 plus 0.05, which is the cost of capital, equals $100 divided by 1.05, which is $97.08. And this also means the discounted cash flow in year 10 is $163 divided by 1 plus 0.03 to the power of 10, which is around $121.64. Now, you don't need to listen to any of this because a lot of it is just mathematical garble. But what this means is, supposing you add up all of the cash flows from year 1 to year 10, the discounted rate, and it works out to be, let's say, 2100 bucks. Now, I haven't done this whole calculation because it's a bit too complicated, but you can use calculators and models to do this. So I'm just making up numbers here. We can say that we could calculate the intrinsic value of company XYZ after all of this for this scenario is actually $2,100 per share. But the current market price for the share is around $1,200. So we could say the company is currently undervalued. So that's a pretty damn good buy. Now, sometimes we need to use and calculate the terminal cash flow, which is the cash flow in year 10, multiply that by the stock multiple, which is in this case is 12 because that's the PE ratio. So in this particular case, it's going to be $1,459.70. Then we can add the total cash flow of $2,100 plus $1,459, which is $3,559, blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. So that's how you calculate the intrinsic value. What's the point of all this? The point is, if you're an investor, mostly active, you might want to use some quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis and bring it back to the intrinsic value of a stock, then compare it to the current market price. 
then it might help you to make a judgment about whether a particular company or stock is good value or not. And these sorts of analyses are done by value investors all the time because they seek value over the long term and mostly done by active investors. Now, that's about it for this episode. We've covered a lot of geeky stuff and I hope this is useful. I don't want you to get too worried about not understanding the DCF model, but I just want you to understand that what is intrinsic value, what is quantitative analysis, and what is qualitative analysis. Those are the big three take-home concepts that you need to understand from this episode. I think the rest of it is just gibberish, to be honest. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms, that's even better, and please leave a positive review. The more reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast, so please keep them coming, because I do put a lot of thought and effort into the episodes. My name's Sev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Professional, and until next time, please make sure you stay safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.